And one of the more provocative statements in the gospel shows up in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, where the Lord basically talks about cutting off body parts. So he basically says, well, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, on the face of it, this is pretty unnerving for obvious reasons. But the way to kind of unpack this particular statement is to read it in light of the previous statement where the Lord talks about adultery. So as you might recall, the Lord basically talks about the act of adultery. But then he goes on to say that whoever lusts after a woman in his own mind has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. And when you read these two statements together, what you basically find is that the Lord is obviously talking about sexual sin, right? So hence the reference to adultery and the more subtle reference to one's right hand. But also the Lord is inviting us to look past the surface, right? To look past the surface of the external manifestation of sin and to ask ourselves, why is it that I commit the sin to begin with? To put it more succinctly, what's the why behind the what? Now that said, I think it's really important for us to kind of clarify right off the bat that when it comes to discovering the root cause of our particular sin, particularly when it comes to sexual sin, we have to be really careful to not be reductive, to not be overly simplistic, if you will. Because of course, if you're too simplistic when it comes to identifying or uncovering the root cause behind your sinful behavior, then it becomes all the more difficult to come up with a practical solution which really fits the complexity of your particular issue. And so the example that comes to mind to kind of further illustrate the point is this really great book by Dr. Peter Kloponis called Integrity Restored, which deals with the particular subject of pornography. So early on in this particular book, Dr. Kloponis identifies three key factors when it comes to the scourge of pornography. So he identifies them as triggers, emotional wounds, and false core beliefs. So first of all, with regards to triggers, he says that obviously there are sexual triggers, right? So certain kind of provocative magazines and books and movies that might lead us eventually to use pornography. But on top of that, he talks about non-sexual triggers, right? And so think, for example, about feeling tired, feeling sad, feeling stressed out, feeling bored, feeling lonely, that, that kind of thing. And then secondly, again, he talks about emotional wounds, right? So past hurts which have developed into emotional wounds, which continue to persist in the present. And so, for example, think about a whole variety of deep emotional wounds, which can typically arise in the aftermath of feeling bullied, of being rejected by people who should have loved you, of feeling helpless or feeling weak or pathetic. And then finally, again, Dr. Kaplonis talks about false core beliefs, you know, beliefs like I'm unworthy of being loved. I can never trust anyone, even God. And if people really knew me, they would finally reject me. In any case, it's kind of a quick summary with regards to those particular topics, but hopefully you can see where we're going with this, right? Because again, the invitation is to not be reductive, to not be reductive when it comes to the subject of pornography. And so, for example, we need to recognize that whenever a person chooses to watch pornography, it's not simply because of one sort of isolated trigger. And so, for example, it's not so much like, you know, I watched pornography because I saw a certain magazine or a certain book or simply because I was tired or bored. It's a lot more complicated than that. And so instead, what typically happens is that the thing certainly begins with a trigger, but then that leads to emotional wounds, and that leads to a certain kind of reinforcing of false core beliefs. So to further illustrate the point in a really concrete sort of way, imagine there's a young man who's had a really rough day at work, right? And so right away, he's feeling tired, he's feeling stressed out, maybe he's feeling lonely, and that triggers all sorts of emotional wounds. And so maybe it reminds him of the pain and the sadness of being bullied in the past, of feeling weak and rejected and helpless back in the day when he was young. And again, maybe that recollection leads to a certain reinforcement of false core beliefs. And so, for example, perhaps a certain thought pattern arises where the young man starts thinking to himself, I knew it. I will never be loved. I am not lovable. 
I will never be seen and known and loved, especially if a sense of self-worth is tied to a sense of efficiency or productivity. And that, as you might imagine, can very easily lead to the decision to watch pornography. Okay, now I realize that we're taking a lot of time to kind of identify this subconscious pattern which leads to the use of pornography, but the reason why I'm spending so much time in this is to help you realize that even though it's really important to instill good habits in our life, right? So habit of prayer, habit of exercise, habit of accountability, for example, with certain friends and family members, and even though it's really good to exercise, you know, the act of the will in terms of acute moments of temptation, at the same time, the real work has to be done in the area of emotional wounds and false core beliefs. And that just takes time. It just takes time and effort. To further illustrate the point, I was recently listening to an episode from Matt Frad's podcast, Pints with Aquinas, where he had on as a guest this really interesting Catholic therapist named Dr. Matt Brudinger, who was talking about the subject of memory. So with regards to the subject of memory, Dr. Bruinger said that memory obviously arises whenever we draw sufficient attention to a particular thing, an event or a circumstance or wherever the case may be. And he went on to say that you can divide memories into two things. So first of all, there's what's called episodic memory. And this is basically the thing that happened to you. We might call it the what, right? And so for example, my dad yelled at me or my mom hugged me, that kind of thing. But then secondly, there's semantic memory, and this is basically the meaning or conclusion that we derive from, again, certain circumstances or events. And so, for example, because of past wounds or past hurts, perhaps I now believe that authority figures can't be trusted or my parents don't love me. In any case, Dr. Bruinger goes on to say that when it comes to therapy, therapy in a certain sense typically deals with semantics. And so, for example, let's say you're going about your life and you encounter an unexpectedly painful situation, which in turn reminds you about how your dad yelled at you in the past, which in turn threatens to trigger a false core belief, namely that you are not lovable. Well, maybe in that particular circumstance, you might try to override the old semantic memory that you're not lovable with the new semantic memory from your therapy. And so I remember that Dr. Bruinger told me that I was actually lovable and that my dignity is not tied to what people think of me or my functionality or efficiency. But Dr. Bruninger's whole point was that even though that particular approach to therapy, again, focusing almost exclusively on semantics, can certainly be helpful, at the same time, it has its certain limitations. Because, of course, the reason why these old semantic memories seem to have such a hold on our hearts is because they're typically associated with deep feelings of pain and hurt, which seem to, to make them feel real, as opposed to new semantic memories proposed to us in the context of therapy. And so given all that, perhaps a more effective way to help people to actually achieve real healing in life is to focus not so much on semantics, but to give them new episodic memories. And again, Dr. Bruinger expounds on this point. And so basically what he says, just to kind of paraphrase, is that imagine there's a young man in therapy. The challenge that falls on that particular young man is to intentionally put himself in positions of vulnerability where he would expect himself to be rejected based on past wounds or past experiences. And so perhaps I have a certain recollection that my parents rejected me in this particular situation, so I expect to be rejected going forward. But instead of being rejected, he's actually received with love. And so, for example, perhaps he decides to open up in a state of vulnerability to his therapist. And instead of being rejected as he expects, the therapist leans in and says some variation of, tell me more. And what Dr. Bruinger says is that that particular situation actually reconfigures the old semantic memory as a result of the new episodic memory. Now, I realize that still might sound kind of vague and abstract, so perhaps I might give you a slightly more concrete example from my own kind of experience in pastoral ministry. And so recently here at the parish, I was helping a family prepare for a funeral, in the midst of which I was talking to one of the daughters of the deceased. 
And in the midst of our conversation, she was telling me some really interesting things about her father's life. And so as a matter of background, this particular individual, as he got older, he developed cancer, as a result of which there was a collective decision on the part of the family, and certainly including himself, to have him move to institutional living. So he eventually moved to a local nursing home. And apparently he was really vocal about the fact that he didn't want to go, right? And so he recognized that it was the right thing to do, even though at the same time, again, he was really vocal about the fact that he hated the idea of institutional living. And what's more, as he continued to get older, he lost the use of his hands, he broke his legs, and he even lost the use of his voice. And this was someone who was really active in his former years, organizing huge parties, cooking, baking, even dancing up a storm. And so given all that, the temptation, you might imagine, would have been enormous to think to himself, well, gosh, therefore, I have no value. I have no dignity. I am unlovable because I used to be this, but now I'm that. But you see, this is where the story becomes really beautiful. Because to their eternal credit, the family recognized early on that this would certainly be a recurring struggle. And they actually chose to do something about it. And so his daughters especially always made it a point to make him feel loved, to make sure he was never lonely, to always make him feel special by including him in family events, by inviting him out, by hanging out with him, by spending time with him, by always calling him every single night and saying, have a good night, dad. In other words, instead of focusing simply on semantics by telling him like, look, dad, you are loved and you are lovable, they gave him new episodic memories helping him to experience the fact that, again, you are loved and you are indeed lovable. And as you might expect, this whole approach ultimately worked. And so this man never felt alone. He never felt unloved. He never felt abandoned by his family. And it's culminated in this really beautiful letter that he wrote before his death to be read at his death. And so I won't go into the letter in, in great detail because it's kind of private, but the main thing was he told his family, stay together, just stay together. Now, the thing I want to impress upon you is that in making this particular statement, this exhortation for the family to stay together, this particular gentleman wasn't simply encouraging the family to continue to have parties after he passed on. But instead, I think he was saying two things. First of all, I think he was saying thank you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making me feel special because it meant the world to me. But secondly, I think what he was saying to them was, you need to keep this up because quite honestly, you need this. You need this. You all need this. The world needs this. Everyone needs to know that they are loved through concrete action as opposed to simply words. Love each other as you have loved me. Okay, one final thought, and I'll kind of end with this. And so you've probably heard many times before that sin is never simply a private affair, but always has public ramifications. But the thing I would suggest to you is that the same principle applies when it comes to the journey towards holiness and healing. And so again, it's never simply a private thing, but instead it's always a collective responsibility. And see, what this means, practically speaking, is that, for example, if you're a person struggling with the scourge of pornography, certainly you need to avoid occasions of sin. You need to be aware of your triggers and avoid those particular situations. Certainly you need to install like habits of, of prayer and exercise and maybe have an accountability buddy on top of that. But on top of that, you need to kind of recognize that the real work needs to be applied in the area of putting yourself out there, putting yourself in scary situations over and over again, where you could be rejected, where you could be unloved, but situations which at the same time create really interesting opportunities to be loved to be accepted, to have and experience new episodic memories, which can lead in turn to full healing and restoration.
But that, of course, brings us back to our original point, namely that the path to healing, the path to holiness is never simply a private affair, but is always a collective responsibility, which is basically to say this. As a Christian community, we all need to recognize, first of all, that everyone is struggling. Everyone is wrestling with, to a certain extent, emotional wounds and false core beliefs. So hopefully it goes without saying. But secondly, we need to rise to the occasion to provide people with safe spaces to express their vulnerability, to express their brokenness. And on top of that, to show people, not simply through our words, but through our actions, that truly you are loved, you are cherished, and truly you are never, ever alone. And may God bless you all.